let's start our stories off today with the Maryland must build thousands more homes to keep prices down. This is an interesting story because uh, Maryland will have to make big changes to its housing ecosystem to keep homes affordable over the next 10 years. That's according to a new state commission report that was released on last Wednesday. The analysis from the University of Maryland's National Center for Smart Growth and Enterprise Community Partners, a nonprofit housing lender and advocacy organization, says Maryland must add thousands more housing units by 2030 to accommodate a swelling population of low-income residents while also meeting unmet demand for moderate-income residents, seniors, and people with disabilities. The study's authors recommend expanding state-backed mortgages to reach lower-income home buyers, establishing dedicated funding sources for affordable housing, removing barriers to rezoning, adopting rent stabilization policies, and scaling back parking requirements that can raise the cost of new development, among dozens of other recommendations for officials on every level of government. So looking ahead to 2030, if current trends hold, Maryland will need more homes that serve extremely and very low-income households, smaller, one-person households, seniors, and families with children, says the report, which was commissioned by the Maryland Department of Housing and Community Development. These homes and any complimentary services, such as home ownership counseling, down payment assistance, or rental assistance, will need to align with the unique needs of an increasingly racially and ethnically diverse population. Today, the state is short 85,000 rental units for low-income households, according to the study, with Maryland expected to add an estimated 97,166 low-income households by 2030. The shortage will worsen unless the state creates and preserves many more deeply affordable homes. 13 of the state's 23 counties and Baltimore City don't have enough housing that's affordable to very low-income renters. The deficit is largest in Montgomery County, followed by Baltimore, the analysis says. Median gross rental rent increases increased by 31% and 33% in Montgomery and Prince George's counties, respectfully between 2000 and 2017, according to census data referenced in the study. Median income in both counties increased by less than 2% in the same period. The report also notes that Maryland's home ownership market has mostly recovered from the recession of 2007 to 2009, but the state's supply of for-sale homes is still hampered by high construction costs and limitations on building apartments, townhomes, and other denser housing types. Gaps in the housing market have also contributed to racial disparities in home ownership, 
the analysis says. The black home ownership rate in Maryland is only 26 percentage points lower than that of whites. That's quite a bit. Home ownership in Maryland has become more expensive since 2000, even after accounting for the declines in prices that took place following the Great Recession, the analysis says. The study's authors note that they don't take into account COVID-19 because there's not enough data to assess the pandemic's impact on Maryland's housing market yet, but they predict the health emergency will lead to slower economic growth and less housing development over time. The health crisis could cause housing prices to rise at a slower rate than they did between 2015 and 2019, the report says, but not much of it but not much if lenders in Maryland don't take action now to encourage new housing development. Rising construction costs, strict regulatory requirements, a lack of higher density zoning, a little political support for development, create uncertainty and drive up the cost to build affordable and market rate homes with builders passing along those higher costs to Marylanders seeking to rent or buy a home in the state, the analysis says. Supporters of smart growth policies say a lack of affordable, affordably priced housing isn't just a problem for people who need that housing. It can also stifle economic growth and worsen traffic congestion as workers are forced to live farther away from jobs. So to sum things up, lawmakers in Montgomery County adopted a resolution in 2019 to add 41,000 new housing units by 2030, with most of them affordable to low and medium income residents. The move drew criticism from the county's top elected official, who said an increase in low income households in Montgomery County isn't assured. story that we've uncovered is a story regarding a Maryland bill which would rename Indian Head Highway to President Barack Obama Highway. There are state senators that have recently introduced the legislation that seeks to rename Indian Head Highway after the former President Obama. Senate Bill 213, introduced by Democratic State Senators Arthur Ellis and O.B. Patterson would require the Maryland State Highway Administration to designate the highway, also known as Maryland Route 210, as the President Barack Obama Highway. Wow. The change would cost roughly $12,500 to cover the cost for the design, construction, and installation of the signs for the highway, which runs through parts of Maryland in Washington, D.C. If passed, the legislation would take effect at the start of October. According to the local Fox affiliate, the highway was named after a town it 
also runs along named Indian Head. The move comes after Ellis introduced a Senate joint resolution back in last November calling on name of the mayor and town council of Indian Head to change its name, the station's note. The resolution stated that the town received its name due to the strong presence of indigenous persons in the late 17th century, specifically the Algonquin tribe. Ellis went on to state that the name may be deemed offensive to indigenous persons and urged the town to be renamed to better reflect the state of Maryland's respect of indigenous history, culture, and persons. According to the local station, the state Senate's Education, Health, and Environmental Affairs Committee is slated to consider the measure this late this month. final story for the evening. And it's based on the story of how a mass suicide by slaves caused the legend of the flying African to take off. In May of 1803, a group of enslaved Africans from present-day Nigeria of Igbo and Igbo descent leaped from the single-masted ship into Dunbar Creek off St. Simons Island in Georgia. A slave agent concluded that the Africans drowned and died in an apparent mass suicide. But oral traditions would go on to claim that the Igboes either flew or walked over water back to Africa. For generations, island residents, known as the Gullah Geechee people, passed down the tale. When folklorists arrived in the 1930s, Igbu landing and the story of the flying African assumed a mythological place in African American culture. Though the site carries no bronze plaque and remains unmarked on tourist maps, it has become a symbol of traumatizing legacy of transatlantic slavery. Poets, artists, filmmakers, jazz musicians, grots, and novelists such as Toni Morrison and pop stars like Beyonce have all told versions of the tale. They've often switched up the story details to reflect different times and places. Yet the heart of the original tale, one of longing for freedom, beats through each of these retellings. The stories continue to resonate because those yearnings, whether they're from the cargo hold of a sloop or the confines of a prison cell, remain just as intense today. Sourcing the story. As an academic trained in literary history, the author always looked for the reasons behind the story's origins and how stories travel or change over time. Variations of the flying African myth have been recorded from Arkansas to Canada, Cuba, and Brazil. Yet even as the many versions cut across the black 
diaspora. The legend has co- co- coalesced along a single place, St. Simon's. An entity, an entry in the Georgia Encyclopedia makes a direct correlation between the 1803 rebellion mass suicide and the later literary folklore tradition. Why? One reason is geographic. St. Simon's, part of the archipelago that stretches from Florida to North Carolina, long remained separate from the mainland United States. This isolated allowed African customs, excuse me, this isolation allowed African customs to survive, where elsewhere they were assimilated or vanished. Historian Melissa L. Cooper describes the Gullah Geechee people as cultural conservators, tasked in popular culture with the duties of preservation. Serendipity also played a role in citing the story. When a causeway from mainland Brunswick to St. Simon's was built in 1924, folklorists literally followed a paved route into the past. During the New Deal, the Works Project Administration funded an oral history project that involved interviewing formerly enslaved people, and the flying African story was recorded in Drums and Shadows, the classic volume that published interviews from the project. One Works Project Administration interviewer recorded St. Simon's recontour Floyd White asking, How about Ebo's landing? That's the place where they bring the Ebo's obu on slab ships. They start singing and they march right down in the river, Dunbar Creek, and march back to Africa. But they never get home, White added. They get drowned. Floyd White is a key source on the flying African, though as the hackneyed written transcription of his interview suggests, questions linger. The Ebos, by his account, walk rather than fly across the water. White allows that he does not personally believe the myth. He says they drowned. Stories change. Songs remain the same. The flying African, despite a a genealogy rooted in St. Simon's, has no single point of origin. A shifting present continues to rewrite the past. These differences across versions only underscore the strength of the myth's central core. The storyteller, Auntie Zai, recounts the Igbu landing legend in a YouTube post. To make the tale more relevant to children today, she launches into the familiar refrain, and before I'd be a slave, using the hymn to bridge the myth and a long struggle for civil rights. And then there's Toni Morrison's novel, Song of Solomon, the very title of which links music and flight In the story, the novel's main character, Milkman Dead, 
pieces together mysterious, mysterious lyrics to recover a hidden past. Once he understands the song, he leaps from a Virginia cliff and flies away. Or is it suicide? The ending is famously ambiguous. Healing through flight. Like all powerful myths, Igbu landing and the flying African transcend boundaries of time and space. Experimental filmmaker Sophia Nolly Allison perceives memories from Dunbar Creek as an ancestral map. In a poetic narrative, she lays over a dance montage. She muses, dreams are reality. Times is relative, and the past, present, and future are melding together. Allison suggests that the cross-generational continuity of the myth nurtures her, sustaining her voice through centuries of violence. Children's author Virginia Hamilton likewise offers the flying African as a script for healing. Her most famous story, The People Could Fly, broaches the difficult subject of the Middle Passage, the leg of the slave trade in which Africans, tightly packed in slave ships, were transported across the Atlantic Ocean. Hamilton explains why some Africans had to leave their wings behind when forced to America. They couldn't take their wings across the water on the slave ships, she writes. Too crowded, don't you know? How does the culture get those wings back? Where some storytellers linger over haunting images, such as those chains supposedly still heard in Dunbar Creek, artists such as Morrison, Allison, and Hamilton look forward. Their stories lay the groundwork for recovery. Hamilton presents The People Could Fly as a direct form of hope. In a preface to her collection of that title, she explains how tales created out of sorrow carry Black America forward. She reminds readers, keep close all the past that was good and that remains full of promise. A painful past must be summoned in order to be redeemed. Igbu Landing starkly illustrated in 1803 how the choice between slavery and death was not a choice at all. Slavery, sociologist Orlando Patterson wrote, was also social death. But it's important to remember that joy doubles as a form of decolonization. Music threads through every version of the flying African legend. Magic words propel field workers into the sky. Kanyakumbumba tambe in song, our spirits lift. So there you have it. Another episode with Edward Estes, the mayor of the city of Glen Arden. We look forward to you returning to get updates on what's going on with, of course, the pandemic and other activities within the county and the city of Glen Arden. We hope to hear from you soon and stay in touch. Thank you for joining my episode.